Today's sermon uh, is going to be the first in a series of sermons that I'm going to title Vision for Arise. What I want to do in the next four weeks is walk through what are the different aspects that we are thinking and hoping and praying that God is asking us to do, calling us to do, and that we are faithfully, obediently following him in. So for the next four weeks, we're going to say, what is the vision for Arise? And today's sermon, I want you to leave knowing this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. As a member of God's church, you are specifically called, gifted, and enabled, unlike anything else in the church ever has been or ever will be. Uh, Normally, I would not say you're special, but in this case, we are extraordinarily special. We all have received the same grace from God, and yet he has asked each and every one of us to partake in his church because we are uniquely gifted and blessed to be in it. Let me put it like this. You are the only version of you that has ever been in the church or ever will be in the church. And God saved you, not just so that you could sit on the sidelines. God saved you so you can help build the kingdom. I want you to leave knowing that is true and then ask you, how can you participate in utilizing your gifts, your unique abilities, the thing to which God has said, you are the only version of this in my church. There is nobody else. If you don't do this, nobody else will. And then to go do that. I'm going to read for us the passage on which today's sermon has been prepared. It is Romans 12, 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, As I went back and I looked at my study notes, that I I have a little program that keeps study notes on all the passages I've I've preached through. Uh, I found my notes on Romans 12, 1 through 2. Uh, In seminary, we were given, going through a Romans class, and we were given the opportunity to preach on one aspect or one passage of Romans, and uh, we didn't know what everybody else was preaching on, and we had to give uh, a very lengthy, or as a final project, very lengthy understanding of all the commentary, all the language, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I I went back over my notes, and uh, there was a gentleman in my class who used to be a lawyer who got called in the ministry, left the law practice, and came into seminary. He was about 50 years old, one of the brightest guys in the entire world uh, that I had experienced, and we were going through presenting our papers And lo and behold, we presented on the same exact passage. He was much better than mine. And he got to go first. And I don't know if you understand how that works in life, but when you are less than somebody else and they go first, you get shown up a great deal. So I was shown up on that day, but don't worry, I took notes on what he preached. And hopefully I'll use them today. 
Like I said, uh, Romans chapter 12 comes on the heels of the first 11 chapters. It is speaking to us about how we as a body are to go and to do likewise to God's people, his church, the world, and serve them well. Today's sermon is titled, Every Member Gifted. So again, leave today knowing this. You are gifted in some incredible way by God. It's not your doing, it's his doing. And he gifted you not so that you can selfishly gain off of that, but rather so that others may gain off of it. And as we go through this vision for Arise the next four weeks, I want you to take these, put them together. They're, they're kind of like an encyclopedia, a quick version of what we are to do. Quick and dirty and to the point, you are gifted and you need to use those gifts. Now, how we get to that point, how I try to encourage you that you've been gifted, you're utilized, you're great, you're special. How do I do that? I need to actually ask you a question first. Now, this question I'm going to ask you, if I presented it, if I opened it up for discussion, and it wasn't just here, but it was maybe in your, with your neighbors or at work, if I was to ask you what constitutes a good life, how would people answer? Well, a good life is to uh, have a great family, to get a good 401k going, to retire well, to take lots of vacation, to rest, to be whole, to take care of yourself, to have a healthy mind, body, heart. We can go down this road quite a lot. And we'd have a million different answers, wouldn't we? Just think of your friends. Think of your family. If I said, what constitutes a good life, how many varying opinions would we come across? I'm going to try to chronicle two very, very, very exaggerated versions of it that are worldviews to try to highlight this point. If I was to ask you what makes a good life, and I was to go over some Norris, uh, Norris kind of culture, and I say, let's, let's go Vikings, let's go, let's go war-torn places. I say, what constitutes a good life? And they say, to face death with valiant effort. To face death with, with courage, with hope. Now, I don't know if you understand, there's Valhalla. I'm going to Valhalla. I'm, I'm going to be in heaven. I've died a glorious death, and I get to ascend to, to the kings of old, to the gods of old, and be with them forever. And if we were to understand that well, there's actually a, a really weird cultural nuance within that, that thinking that says, uh, if, you, if a Viking died of old age, if they died happy in their beds at home, surrounded by loved ones, they don't get to go to Valhalla. They don't get to go to the promised land. You know why? They, they were a coward. They faced death secluded on their own in a house, not fighting, not to the death, and they, they wouldn't get to go to heaven, essentially. Now, compare that with, uh, with maybe a, a, a Buddhist worldview. One says, I need to face death. I need to, face, I need to stare down and, and stare down the barrel of death and spit in its face and say, ah, I, I've taken you. And even if I die, I'm, I die valiantly. Compare that with an understanding that says, no, you need to transcend death. You need to rise above death. death. Death is no big thing to us. We need to be enlightened. This world is so silly in all its simple understanding. Oh, oh, you people worrying about health and worrying about justice. If you just stop caring as much and if you were to transcend, life would be so much better for you. Become one with the universe. Now, these are two drastically different understandings. One cares so much about the physical world that how we face death. I must die in battle, otherwise I don't get to go to heaven. It's what I do. One that says, ah, oh, it's nothing what you do. This world, this world is fleeting. Just be done with it. Now, those are just two of classic worldviews. 
that we have nuanced all the way through, that if I ask what makes a good life, one, to transcend understanding, one, to die in battle. And we can't laugh at these two understandings because truth be told, we have some version of this in our own lives. What makes a good life? Well, if I work hard enough, it makes a good life for me. If I have enough children, it makes life good enough for me. If I'm generous enough, if I'm gracious, if I'm kind, if I have enough friends, if I remain calm, if I don't lose my cool. See, we have them in very, very bite-sized forms of the same understanding. And today what I want to tell you is this. We struggle to define what makes a good life. And I think it's because of this. I think I understand what Paul is saying in Romans where he says, in the very beginning, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I think if I was to ask you what makes a good life, our misunderstanding of answering that question comes from this. We don't think we've died yet. Our misunderstanding of what makes a good life is we believe we are gaining ground onto a good life where at the end we look back and we say, is this good? Did I do enough? Uh, we're like that mouse or cat that brings its offering to you on the doorstep and say, did I do a good job? Or that dog that digs up some furry animal and brings it to your doorstep and says, did I do a good job? A lot of life is like that for us. We accumulate, we do, we gain, we work, and then we go, is this enough? Is this good enough? Do I, am I accepted? Am I loved? And I think the answer to this is not to look ahead to our death and say, did I do enough? But rather to say this, to look back at our death and say, I never did enough, and I'm dead and gone, and yet I live again. The true answer to what makes a good life, and then therefore how you live in that good life, is to say this, the good life is not for you to accumulate, for you to do, for you to gain. The good life is to say, I'm dead. I'm done. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what makes a good life. And I'm going to try to encourage you. It's the only way you can do anything good in life. It's the only way. I'm going to try to, try to walk through Romans 12 and show that to you. You must live as though you are dead. Now, how in the world can we do that? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I want to say how we can die well. What does dying well do for us? And how or who does it for us? So how does one die? What does it do for us? And then who does it for us? How does a Christian die? It says in chapter 12, therefore, and then states what true worship is. It says true worship is becoming a living sacrifice. Now, I don't know if you're a, a well, I'm, I'm a nut, and I, I stop people, like I said before, I stop people mid-sentence if they misuse a word I don't like, and I go, ah, oh, can we change this word? word? And you all roll your eyes at me, and you're like, oh my gosh, can I just speak without you correcting me? And I'm like, no, I can't stop it, I'm sorry. But if, if we're reading through Romans, and we were to come to this point, it says, true worship is becoming a living sacrifice. Now, I don't know if, if you caught that. This word, or this phrase, living sacrifice, is a very, very, very interesting phrase. It essentially means this. Paul is saying, be a dead living thing. Now, how is this possible? How can Paul exhort us, encourage us, say to us, be a dead living thing. Those are, those are oxymoronic. You can't be a dead living thing. It's either dead or you're living. And he says, go on being a dead living thing. This is very hard for us. This is very, this is very interesting for us to understand. We can understand the Braveheart mentality 
I died, I'm dead, my memory lives on, I was a sacrifice for people. Ah, there you go, good. Take, take my memory of me and live out well. We understand that. And we also understand living. I need, living things consume. I, I need good things to keep going. I, I, I can't be dead, I have to live and I have to grow and I have to, we, we understand those two. Put them together and we, we actually have a very hard time understanding what it means to be a dead living thing. But this is what makes a Christian a Christian. If I was to try to delineate very, very deep theological truths into some core issues that we can't disagree upon, this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who is a dead living thing on behalf of God the Father. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer my good works, but his good work. No longer what I think, but he thinks. That's a Christian. Now notice what's not in that definition. A Christian is not somebody who holds moral truths. That's not what makes a Christian. You know how I know? People who aren't Christian hold the same moral truths. So it can't be that. Well, Christians are those who do certain activities. That's actually wildly not true as well. Because there are a ton of people who are not Christian who do the same things as Christians. Walk into any seminary in America, and you will find people who know the Bible like the back of their hand but are not living as Christ intended for them. They don't actually believe in God. They, they, they actually know so much of the Bible, yet they cannot exhort you with the power of what it says. No, a Christian is somebody who says, I am a living sacrifice. This is, as Paul says, true worship. Paul did not mince words with this. Paul's laying a gauntlet. He is saying to you, whatever you thought faith was, whatever you thought worship was, let me tell you what it is. It is you being dead yet living, sacrificing your body for the kingdom. Now, we as Christians, we want to think all the time, yeah, no, no, I, I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm all there. I sacrifice. I give. I'm in God's service. I'm in service to him. I want you to stop and I want to challenge you for a moment. Paul took 11 chapters of Romans to go through all the deep theological truths of just how incredible this truth is. Eleven chapters to try to understand this one truth, that Christ alone gives you salvation and not anything you do. And then he spends the rest of Romans kind of outlining how that, that is to play out. He spent 11 chapters. He put pen to paper. He authored scripture to try to have you understand this, to have you be, receive this challenge of this. I want you to assume for a moment this is the posture of a Christian. What if I'm dead wrong? The posture of a Christian is not somebody who says, I know the right answer. That's the posture of the world. The posture of the world says, look at me, I'm strong, I'm great, I'm glorious, I know all things. The posture of a Christian is one who says, eh, I don't really know anything, do I? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong in my understanding. Maybe I, maybe I need to be shown what is good? Let me give you an example. Uh, there are numerous people in life, and maybe if you fit in this category, I want to challenge you to, to understand what you can do out of this. Uh, there was a missionary. They thought that they were called by God to go to a different country, speaks a different language, and minister to these people. So they said, yes, I'm going to start training. Yes, I'm going to start taking seminary courses. Yes, I'm going to start getting coached on how to do so, and I will end up going abroad and going overseas and, and ministering well to these people. And after the months came down, their grades came back, and they were getting poor grades. They weren't learning the language. They didn't know the language. They couldn't speak it fluently. They couldn't preach in it. And every time they met with a coach, the coach kept on saying, I don't, 
I don't think you're ready. I don't think you're ready. You need to do this. And time after time after time after time, they kept on coming back with negative test results on what it was. And at the end of it, when it came time to give the declaration, they thought to themselves, they had, they had actually sold their home. They had sold their possessions. They were getting ready to move. And the, co- the company of, of pastors they were with said, you're not going. We can't send you out. You don't know the language. You, you don't know missional understanding. You don't know the Bible that well. You're not prepared. You're not going. The coursework is not good. And they said, how dare you? I, when I got called in the ministry, I said, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to. I'll, I'll go to the ends of the earth. I want to serve you, and how dare you? You're, you're getting in the way of God's call. I'm called to be a missionary. They had a friend come to them and say this. They said, hey, you said at the beginning of this, you were called a missionary. You go anywhere God called you. Yes, I would go anywhere. You would do anything God called you to do. Yes, I would do anything God called me to do. Well, what if God's calling you to stay right where you're at and serving the people right where you're at and not going overseas? See, they said, I'd do anything, including staying right where you're at, including not getting your dreams, including maybe understanding that what you think is a call should more, more or less be described as a desire, not a call. See, what Paul is trying to say is living sacrifices do not think I'm holding the steering wheel, I know where I'm going, I'm directing God, and God, you better give me what I want. That's not a living sacrifice. Think, think Weekend at Bernie's, that great cinematic masterpiece. It's a horrible movie. Don't ever go watch it. Weekend at Bernie's, this, this gentleman has deceased, and these two uh, buddies want to get everything that he's been given, and so they prop him up and cart him around like he is alive, and he has to go everywhere they go. He has no, he has no, no desire to do anything. Why? He's dead. He has no thoughts. He has no control. He's not the one steering. Do you think you know better than God? that you can steer your life oh so well. Or maybe, just maybe, he has better perspective, better care, better love, better knowledge to know what is best for you. Now, that, that grates us, doesn't it? Because couldn't we say, that missionary, couldn't they say, well, you know what, God called me, but you guys are mucking this whole thing up. Oh, you guys are getting in the way of what God wants. Let me challenge you. If I can get in the way of what God wants, that's a very small God, because I'm a very small man. I don't have that kind of power. Rather, what if we said, clearly God does not want me to go overseas. Why? Because it's not happening. Now that's, doesn't that just, that sits so well with you, doesn't that? It's like a warm blanket. And yet it should be. Do you know why it should be? Here's why it should be. Why it should be is because we are people that if left to our own devices, we would worship silly, small things that could never give us life. We would make, we would make our lives revolve around something that has an expiration date. It would never be fulfilled. We would say to ourselves, my life is, is how I face death. And then you, you die alone of a heart attack not in battle, and you say, well, I'm, I don't get to go to Valhalla now, I don't get to go to heaven. I, I died a coward's death. Or you say to yourself, I'm going to transcend above all things, and yet you can't get your mind to stop thinking about the injustices of the world and the abuses of the world, and you say, I'm not transcending above that. See, if we keep on putting ourselves, if we stand on things that are temporal, hmm, 
If we make our lives on things that have an expiration date, we have an expiration date. Christ says, do not do that. Don't you dare do that. He says, I will put my life on the rock that is eternal. That is true and proper worship. So, friends, if you are worshiping anything else besides the eternal creator of all the universe, if you think you know better of what God wants for you, if you are directing your life, if you think you know best, my encouragement to you is this. Whatever you're worshiping, good things you can worship. Is family good? Of course it is. Is church good? Of course it is. If you're worshiping good things instead of the greatest thing, good things come and go. Great things don't. Eternal things don't. Stop worshiping the thing that can be taken from you in an instant. Because what happens if it's gone in an instant? In the flash of an eye, like chaff being removed. What happens then? No, Christians are people who want God's way above their own. That is what a Christian is. Now, you can't be forced into that. You can't be coerced in that. I've said this before, I'll say it again. No one has ever been argued into belief of God. Not a single person. Uh, one pastor says, no one has ever learned that he or she is a sinner by being told. Our sin is revealed through the holiness and love of God. Do we need to be ex- proclaimed the gospel? Yes. Do we need to be shown our sin? Yes. Will anybody receive it just because I yell loud enough? No. No, we won't. Of course we won't. Do you know what we have to have happen? We have to be shown and desire his ways above our own. If you're controlling your life, if you think you're steering the wheel, if you think you're driving, you cannot just grit your teeth and say, fine, fine, fine. I'll just I'll just go with God, fine, whatever. I give up, I relent. It doesn't work like that. Because the whole entire time, you're gonna be mad and crossing your arms on the back, shaking your head, being like, oh God, I I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't believe you would ever ask me to do this. I can't believe you would choose to do this life for me. You'll grit your teeth, you'll be angry, you'll be bitter the whole time. But instead, if you say, I'm giving my life to you because you are the good God, who does good for his children. If you see that, if you know it, you'll smile ear to ear the entire time. You'll be like Paul who says, you guys gonna gonna throw stones at me and leave me in a ditch to die? Okay, cool, I'll I'll get up, I'll keep going. Are you gonna gonna put me in prison? I don't know if you guys know how jails worked back in the day. There wasn't jail structures that they would build. You know, they would dig a hole, they would throw somebody down, then they put a grate, and they put somebody down, they put a grate, and they put somebody down, they put a grate, until there was like 10 feet of stackable humans in a hole in the ground. Could you, ima- could you imagine being the person on the bottom of that hole? Do you think they're getting potty breaks? It's vile. It's disgusting. And Paul says, okay, bring it. How can he say that? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what he says. My true and proper worship is to say I'm a living sacrifice. I am dead and gone, and what he has in me is life. That's the answer. That's how we are able to do this, to say, Father, whatever you want, I want. Not gritting my teeth, but happily. Now, what does this do for us? What is this perspective? Understanding that our death is behind us, not in front of us. What does that do for us? How do you become, essentially, how do you live that good life? How do you become somebody that if we were to characteristically describe them a caring and loving and sacrificial person, 
First, death is behind you, not in front of you. And secondly, we give up our bodies because he asked us to. This good news, this receptivity, this desire that he gives us, not that we're gritting our teeth, we happily give all of our life to him. Now, what are the actions that allow us to do that? I want to give you two points, two of these actions that allow us to live in this life. And they come from this. It says in Scripture, do not think of yourself as above anyone else, but have sober thoughts. I want to talk about these two things. Don't think of yourself as above anybody else and have sober thoughts. I think in the Christian life, we have one or two, all of life can be binary, right? You can put things in ones and zeros. I think in the church, we have two different understandings. One that says, uh, God loves me so much that he would, he would die just for me. And then the other end that says, I'm a worthless worm. Woe is me. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat dirt. You know, that, that kind of understanding. We have these two understandings. And what Christ says, what Paul says is, no, 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 no. Don't think of yourself as above anybody else, but be sober about it. Don't be, don't be dramatic, Paul is saying to us. He says, be, be reasonable. Be fair. Be honorable to what Christ has done. The first thing of how we live this life, that death is behind us, not in front of us, is to think of yourself not above anybody else. Here's, how, here's the best way I can show you this. If you are having trouble thinking this, well, it's, God would clearly want the best thing for me. He clearly wants me to be a missionary overseas. He clearly wants good life for me. He would never ask me to do the thing you're struggling with right now. He would never do that. I, I'm, I'm much better than that. Here's an easy way for me to try to get at the heart of don't think of yourself as above anybody else. Imagine if on Western Avenue I threw out a scroll paper as long as the entire street. I started at one end and I said, and I plugged into the back of your head and I said, let's get every thought you've ever had, every action you've ever done, everything you've ever been a part of, and let's write it down for the world to see. And then I invited Kelloland out and I invited news crews and I invited video cameras and I invited the mayor and we said, we're going to expose everything about you in front of everybody for them all to see. Who wants to sign up? Aaron, I'm sorry, man. You just, it would be bad. It would be, I, I know, right? But it'd be so good. Okay, that's, that's masochism, man. We need to talk. Do you, if we did that, if we laid it out, if we rolled it out and we wrote everything, we would be undone. We would look at that and we'd be embarrassed. We'd be so red-faced. Our family knew what we thought of them. The deep thoughts that you've actually forgotten right now. The thoughts you've thought of other people outside your family, outside of relationships, outside of your wife, outside of your husband, outside of your kids, you'd be mortified. Now, what Paul says is don't, don't think of yourself as a, essentially he says this. Do you know the easiest way to find somebody's character? Give them power. I'll find everything I need about you out right there. If I give you leadership, everything comes out. How you treat other people, how you lead them, how you love them, how you care for them. If we put a scroll down and said, let's write it all down, we'd be mortified. Paul says, don't think of yourself as better than anybody else. You are just like me. And I know me. I am a sinner saved by grace. The first action of a Christian is to say this. I don't want to believe my words because my words lead to death. My, my opinions, my thoughts, my advice, 
lead to death. His words, not his opinions, his truth lead to life. My way, his ways are above my ways, is what scripture says. The second thing that we are to do is it says, be sober. Don't, don't overinflate your ego, but also be sober about it. What does it mean, be sober? Be realistic. Hear from God who we are. I think one of the biggest problems that we have as Christians is we believe our own, uh, in sports all the time, when somebody's going through a little bit of a rut, uh, it's known as reading the headlines. You start believing the headlines. So somebody comes in, there's a new quarterback signed to the Minnesota Vikings, and he's going to be the savior of the world. <laughs> he's going to lead us to the Super Bowl. He's, and then all of a sudden, we start believing the headline. We start believing the hype. And all of a sudden, he starts tanking. All of a sudden, he starts doing it. And we're like, what is going on? He's believed his own hype. He, he thinks that he's the best thing on planet Earth. The first is to come down. But also, the second is to be sober-minded, is to have reality of what's happening. It's to not believe our ego is inflated, but also not to believe our desperation that we're worthless scum. Don't believe that, church. How do I know that? Look at what Scripture, look at what Romans says. He says, to each one of you, each one of you have been gifted. Now, this is, this is no small thing. When it says the God of the cosmos looked at you and said to you, I'm calling you to be part of my church, and I'm giving you specific ways in which you are to help, you are to grow. No one else can do this. That's insane. Do you understand how, how incredible this is? God did not call super men and women to be part of his church. He didn't say, follow this, follow this icon. This icon will give you everything you need. He did not say that. Do you know why? Do you know what happens when our heroes fall? Planning a church in Portland, this is what you hear all the time. The church is just full of hypocrites. And I can't be part of that. The church is full of hypocrites. Amen. The problem is, are we hypocrites that know it or not? That's the problem. Are we those who say, I know the better way and I don't do the better thing? As Paul says, I don't do the thing I know I should do and I do the thing I know I shouldn't do. Do you have that mentality? Are you sober-minded? And then you say, just like Paul, I'm a... I'm a little bugger. I'm a horrible, horrible little thing. And yet God has asked me to go to his people and preach the good news. Your sin has not disallowed you from being gifted by God to be used to enable his kingdom to be seen more and more. Church, let me put it like this. God did not call you to the church so you can come on Sunday morning, be filled up, go back home, eat dinner, and go to sleep. And then wake up the next day, go to work, go to sleep, go to work, go to sleep, go to work, go to sleep, and come back and do it all on Sunday again. He did not save you for that. That's like having a doctor who has incredible years of her experience saving people's lives, being in a restaurant, and somebody dying of a heart attack, and being like, meh, eh, that's not for me. I need to enjoy my time out. I'm on a date. Do you, how dare you interrupt my date night? This is me time. As a Christian, guess what? Your me time is no longer. If you don't want to be, if you want to have more me time, guess what? Gospel's not for you. But, but what about what I need? Let me ask you this. What if Christ thought that? Do you know what would happen if Christ thought, here's what I need? He would never have gone to the cross. 
He would never have died for you. He never would have gifted you grace that is unmerited, not based upon our good work, but based upon his good work. He never would have done that. Why do we do the same thing? Why do we say, oh, no, I, I, I'm just, it's just a lot on my plate right now. I get it. I understand. We're busy. It's hard to live life. That is a true statement. But Christ says, maybe the problem is not that your plate is full. Maybe the problem is that you're letting good things get in the way of your gifted thing. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you're filling your plate with things that aren't your calling, but you think are because you want them to be. Maybe God has gifted you a totally different way, and maybe you don't like it. Oh, church. You know what my favorite thing about uh, gift inventory? If, if you've been in church long enough, you've taken spiritual gift assessment tests. You know what my favorite part about all that is? People know what the gifts they want are, and they answer accordingly. So they go, do you often find yourself explaining the truth of Scripture to friends? Oh, yes, I do all the time. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but I want to be a teacher. I know you want to be. Are you gracious all the time? Oh, I'm gracious all the time, all to all people. Oh, you're not? What if instead of looking, again, looking to our death and saying, this is what I want, what if we said our death is behind us? What if I can say, what if you can say emphatically, I want to preach the gospel, but God has not gifted me or called me to do so, and so my gift to the church is to be the best follower and be the best administrator possible. And you go, yay, administration, woo. Do you know what scripture says about that? Again, be sober-minded. Don't think of yourself above other people. Scripture says you're the same exact value as other people. There's no value association with that. Your call in life is not less than the call of others. We've done that, church. We put people on pedestals and we said, well, the preacher is, of course, more gifted than everybody else at the church. Church, there's no professionals among us. There's no professional Christian among us. What are you gifted at that maybe you don't want to hear, but it's exactly what the church needs from you? And the only way you can do that is not thinking yourself as above and not thinking yourselves below, but be sober-minded that God has saved you for a purpose and his purposes are good. He has set out good works before he called you into faith. There's nobody else like you in the church. Lastly, how can we do this? I want to give you the power to do this. this. Doesn't this sound lofty and big? And this, this sounds like too much. If it doesn't sound like too much to you, I've done a horrible job explaining it to you. Being a dead, living thing is impossible. You know when people say parenting is hard? Parenting is not hard. Parenting is impossible. It's impossible. Two sinful people trying to go ahead and make people not sinful and show them how to do things that are unlike what I do is impossible. Leading a church, impossible. Being a church member, impossible. Serving enemies, impossible. Except for if you have the power of Christ. How can you do this? One that says, I am not right, but he is right. One that says, I am not great, but he is great and calls me to be great. One that says, I don't come to church to be served, but I come to church to serve. I'm a member gifted in God's body for the, for the sacrifice of others. How can, how can I be selfless? How can I be gracious? Here's the power. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. I urge you. I said earlier, I hinted at this. There's nobody that's been ever alive that has been forced and coerced into the gospel. Not one time. 
If you think you can outsmart your friend, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, if you can convince them, argue them into the gospel, stop doing it. Stop doing it. You're not going to argue anybody into it. What you can do is invite them into it. Invite them to see a better way of life. Invite them to see time and time again, my way leads to death, but his way leads to life. Here's what, uh, if, if there's a fire raging and people are gathered around it and I want them to come to a different fire, a fire that's not toxic, a fire that's going to give them actual warmth, if this fire is unhealthy and the people around us is, is horrible, if I start screaming and throwing things at them and say, stop, stop being around them, they're awful, they're horrible, do you know what I should do instead? Build a giant fire over here that's more warmth with better fellowship, better grace, better hope. And people will start saying, hey, that, that seems like a better fire. Maybe we should go over there. Maybe we should be part of that. The power to do so is I urge you, brothers and sisters, not coerce you, not force you, not take you by, not drag you by the hands and do something, but rather make you appreciate with affection the things of God. Do you affectionately love the things of God? Or are you obligated to serve him? Because I'll tell you this right now. If you feel obligated to serve him, to be a member, to come to church and serve others, if you grit your teeth, if you say, I'm holding on, but I'm oh, fine, I'll let go, you such and such. If that's your life, stop now. Don't serve. Don't give. Because Christ doesn't want that. Christ is not in the business of forcing people to do things that are, un I said this before, it is the most unloving thing for a God, for people who don't want to be with him for eternity to say, you're in heaven with me. That's the most unloving thing in the entire world. The most loving thing is to say, if you want to be with me, you can be with me forever. Church, the power is the urge. The power is the call. The power is to say this, understanding, awareness, my ways lead to death, haven't they? Is It's the taste and see. The only way you can taste and see is try something on. The only way to taste and see is try something on. When you go to the clothing store, do you just say, buy this whole rack, I'll take it home. Okay, some of you do, that's gross. We'll talk later. What do you do? You try it on, you put it on, you say, this doesn't fit me right. I, this isn't good. Let me tell you this right now, church. If you try Christ on, it fits right every time, I promise you. How do I know? Because he doesn't command us to do good to get grace. He says, I've already given grace. I've already died for you. I've already given you everything. Come enjoy. Come have fun. Come, let's play with house money. Here's my encouragement as you leave. The best way to find out to live a life in which you go hands off, that you don't say, I have desires, I have dreams, God must fulfill them. The best way to say your way, not my way, your word, not my word, your truths, not my truths, the best way to do that is this. Use your gifts and see what happens. Apply your hand, see what happens. Try it on. You know that friend that you want to be a better friend and you keep saying, oh, I wish they would call me, oh, I wish they would hang out with me, oh, I wish they would... Do you know the problem in that relationship is? You. You can call. 
You can connect. You can cook dinner. If you are mad at God because you are so tired of not being fulfilled, he has given you everything. You have the ability. He's gifted every single person in his church. Do something. Church, you're going to hear me in the next month say this. Do something. If you come to me like, hey, I got this idea. Great, try it. Do it. Well, what if it doesn't work? Then it won't work. (laughs) And we'll go, oh, that was kind of silly, wasn't it? Yeah, that was kind of silly. Great, let's try something else. You've been gifted by God unlike anybody else. Are you using that for selfish gain or for the gain of somebody else? The only way to do that is to see his ways are better than your ways, to love his affectionate purposes for your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you're making us. I pray today, Father, that we use the gifts given to us, that we do not think of ourselves highly. We think ourselves soberly, that we are exactly who we are, gifted and made by you, specifically for your purposes, unlike our dreams and desires, but your dreams and desires are better than anything we could ever do, think, or imagine. Let us not love the simple things in life. Let us love the great things, which is you. So as I pray, amen.